So last week we opened up 2020 by talking about a vision of renewal. And in overwhelming times, times such as these that we live in right now, where there is fracturing happening, there is exhaustion and depression and anxiety collectively as a society, and we experience that individually, God does his deepest works of renewal in those times. It's counterintuitive, but the worse it gets, the deeper God wants to do a work in us personally and citywide and eventually into our culture. And so Neighbors wants to live into a vision this year of personal renewal for the sake of our neighbors. And so we're contending for this sweeping renewal to go all out of our lives and into our society. And the way to live that out this year is in communities. Jump into a community, learn these practices of renewal at the beginning of the year. So what we want to talk about today, these are kind of, it's kind of the sequel, a two-part teaching, a vision of renewal, and if and when God does bring renewal in our lives, then moving into a vision of legacy, a vision of legacy. Webster's defines legacy as something transmitted by or received from an ancestor or predecessor or from the past. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but the Bible is full of passages about generations. We usually skip over those chapters. Generation so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. Those sections are outlining and they're showing God's people how the progenitors, the forefathers and the foremothers, they lay out how God worked through those beginning humans and set trajectories through entire generations of people to accomplish his work in the world. And what you need to hear this morning is that God is working beyond your lifetime through you right now. That's amazing. God is working through generations after us. The psalmist wrote, The plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. And so you and I adopting a generational view, that's a key piece of our transformation as his followers, and it's a key piece for us to live into who Jesus intends us to be. When we adopt that kind of not only long game to the end of our days, but the long, long game going all the way beyond our days, that actually causes us to make our choices differently. We begin to emphasize things differently. We put energy into our life in a different way when we're thinking about how our choices are going to affect our grandkids and our great-grandkids. Don Carson, New Testament scholar, he says, it is astonishing how much spirituality turns on living with eternity's values in view. So this big idea of embracing a generational view this morning has a ton of meaning for me because I'm actually the product of a generational legacy prayer warrior. I didn't know this, but some years ago when my wife and I were still living in Twin Falls, Idaho, we bumped into one of my dad's second cousins, 10 times removed, one of those situations, on the street corners of Twin Falls, Idaho. And through the small town grapevine, she had heard that one of the Braga boys had become a Christian. And she started sharing with my wife and I how excited she was to finally meet me. And she'd heard that I'd become a Christian and that there'd been this radical transformation in my life. And it was so exciting. And then she kind of paused. She got very sober. And she said, you need to know that your great-grandmother prayed that there would be a man of God that would rise up and carry on the Braga line for Jesus. And with just like a little, I'm not being dramatic, like a little misty-eyed, she looked at me and she said, you're the answer to her prayers, Danny. It's amazing. This woman who I never met prayed, 
And because of Jesus' mercy through her prayers, I was born again. Jesus saved me. And now there will be this line of Bragas, Bragas, however we say our last name, who... <laughs> this is an ongoing conversation in our family, by the way. <laughs> My ultimate identity is child of God, not Braga Braga, whatever. Hmm. There's going to be this line of us who follow Jesus. And beyond that, my great-grandmother's prayers are influencing you today because here I am with you. That's, that's generational impact that she will never know about, or maybe she does. Maybe she's watching right now. So there are multitudes of facets that create this generational view and that enable us to leave a legacy that honors God, that ripples through the generations that are left after us. And all I want to do this morning is invite us to embrace three specific ones at the onset of 2020. Humility, integrity, and intimacy. Humility, integrity, and intimacy. So there's no better place to see these factors, these three factors in particular, at work in, than in the legacies of the Israeli kings. The books of Kings and Chronicles that most of us skip over, they tell the story of the lives of these kings and the good and the bad that they left to the generations after them. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at a specific king for each of these factors, starting with King Uzziah in the book of 2 Chronicles, which I'm sure you were in for your devotions this morning, 2 Chronicles, and the need for humility. All the passages are going to be up on the screen for you so we can just work through them. Let's meet Uzziah. Under his leadership, the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, enjoyed this period of really incomparable resurgence. So the biblical tradition remembers Uzziah in the book of Kings. He's called Azariah as one who mended the defenses of Jerusalem. It was Uzziah who reorganized and re-equipped the Judean armies. And then he went on to win and maintain control over numerous caravan routes Uzziah was the one that extended Judah's frontiers at the expense of the enemies, the Philistines and the Edomites. But then at the very end of his life, he suffered a really huge setback as he was struck with leprosy. Now, it's the leprosy at the end of Uzziah's life that I want us to, to focus on this morning in reference to humility. This king, he had heard the words of God and obeyed them through the prophets that had come to him. And because of his obedience to the words of God from the prophets, God had blessed him. God had expanded his reign through his power and through his grace. And Uzziah, at the end of his days, was set to leave a legacy that his grandkids would look back on him and say, Grandpa Uzziah heard God's word, obeyed God's word, lived for God, and was blessed by God. But instead, something absolutely tragic happens. 2 Chronicles 26.16, after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. After Uzziah became powerful, all of God's expansion through him, resurgence underneath his reign, victories granted to him, did not produce humble gratitude in Uzziah. They produced pride at the end of his life. And so Uzziah slipped into that dangerous place where he began to believe the lie that via his own strength, his wisdom, his ability, he had wrought this great revival that Judah experienced. 
And that pride is what motivated Uzziah to do things that he should not have been doing. We're told here that he entered into the temple of the Lord to burn incense. And this was something that was reserved only for the Levitical priests. So Uzziah's pride caused him to step out of his lane, so to speak, and to step on toes that he should have never been stepping on, all because the man was pursuing further honor for himself. He was striving to leave his own legacy and gain his own honor in the way that he could do through his flesh. The life and the honor that God had already given to him wasn't enough for this man. So in the scene, I won't read it for you, but there's 80 priests, the lead priest and then 80 other priests. They go in and they confront this king in the temple and they're telling him, this is not for you, Uzziah, to be burning incense in the temple. But he still would not stand down, even at the confrontation of 80 priests. Verse 19, Uzziah had a censer in his hand ready to burn the incense. He's being confronted now by these priests. And he became angry, hard-hearted, obstinate. While he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. So these 80 priests are confronting this man in his pride, and they're saying, stand down, Uzziah. You've stepped out of your lane. You're stepping on our toes. And he won't stand down. And so God stood him down and strikes him with leprosy. Now, in the collective memory of the Jewish people, to be struck with leprosy was a mark of rebellion and cursing. Remember Moses' sister Miriam. In Levitical law, Uzziah was now unclean the most horrific state that a Jewish human could exist in, uncleanness. The skin disease that broke out on him, this leprosy, it would now separate him from God's people and God's temple, which was the very center of God's presence. And it was an outer disease. What we see is like this this outer disease was sourced in the inner disease of his heart. And so rather than being remembered as a great obedient leader of resurgence, Uzziah's lack of humility in a single moment of stupid pride and stupid arrogance, in a single moment, it all comes crashing down. And then this tragic epithet of his life. King Uzziah, verse 21, had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house, leprous, and banned from the temple of the Lord. And so Uzziah's legacy was one of uncleanness and separation and banishment and loss. At root, Uzziah's problem was that he wanted absolute power, absolute glory, absolute fame, absolute honor. And the absolutes, they have no place in God's kingdom. A humble man is always aware that any sort of influence or honor or blessing is a gift rather than a possession. And that these influences and these blessings and these expansions that God brings through us are successes They always, always, always involve some kind of team dimension with other humans and a team dimension with God himself. And that is why Jesus' leadership was chiefly characterized by obedient servanthood. Humble service, you guys. Right here at the beginning of 2020, we can commit to this. Humbly serving, staying in our lane, that is, receiving what God has for us uniquely as individuals uniquely as a new church plant in the city, staying in our lane, letting God do what he does through us without having to strive but out of a place of rest, 
without fandangling and manipulating, but just receiving what God is doing through us, that is what will create an honorable legacy for you as individuals, an honorable legacy for our church, which I pray goes on from generation to generation. These legacies that I'm talking about, they don't necessarily have fame associated with them. That's how we Americans think of legacy, the most famous ones, the people with the most money, whoever got statues made to them. That's not necessarily what's being spoken about here with a godly biblical legacy. Generations are influenced through the unseen humble acts and services and commitments that we make for our kids and our grandkids. They will be affected by humility. Now, the second factor, if humility is a key factor in this legacy leaving, then the second factor for a godly legacy is integrity. Integrity. And so for that, we turn to Hezekiah, the great king Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah... He towers in the biblical narrative. Hezekiah actually holds three spaces in three separate Old Testament books. It's pretty impressive. And he was this figure of revival and incredible faith. So just a quick summary on who Hezekiah was. Hezekiah is a king of the southern kingdom, Judah. He swept through with this intense leadership of revival and purifying the Jewish people. He removed all the idolatrous places and did this cleansing work in Judah. It was Hezekiah who faced impossible odds. The Assyrian armies were coming down on the northern kingdom and they were sweeping down into the southern kingdoms. And Hezekiah, who should have been shaking in his boots, stood his ground, stood by faith, told his people to remain silent, that God would deliver them. And sure enough, in one day, 185,000 Assyrian troops were taken out in one fell swoop by Yahweh, by God. Hezekiah was a strategic leader. He's the one that created this channel through which they could bring water. I've actually been in that channel in, in Jerusalem. At one point in his life, Hezekiah contracted a terminal illness. We don't know what it was. And he goes to God. He turns his heart to prayer. He says, please, look at my life. I've trusted you. And God says, I'll grant you another 15 years of life. So you have this incredible legacy being set up by this incredible man of faith and prayer and revival, but something very similar to Uzziah happened to Hezekiah at the end of his life. We're told that these Babylonian envoys came to congratulate Hezekiah after he had been healed from his terminal disease. You need to understand that at this point in history, Assyria was the major superpower and Babylon was on the rise. And these Babylonian, Babylonian envoys, as they were coming to congratulate Hezekiah, they were secretly also doing a little reconnaissance work in the little southern kingdom of Judah. Let's see what kind of good we can get from this land. Let's see what kind of riches it has to offer. Hezekiah should have had a more prudent, strategic, careful, kingly leadership at this point. But he does something that was just a little bit off. These Babylonian envoys come, and in his confidence, overconfidence, he shows them all of the lands, all of the treasures, including the temple treasures. And so we pick up the story right as the prophet Isaiah is coming to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is being warned by the prophet Isaiah. These Babylonian envoys, they represent a future coming of Babylon, and it's not going to be good, Hezekiah. Let's read verses 16 to 18, 2 Kings 20. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, 
your generations after you, will be, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So I just want us to pause here for a moment and let this sink in. What do you think Hezekiah's reaction might have been with these words of the prophet? Now remember, this man had faced down the highest military generals of the Assyrian superpower of his day. This man had seen 185,000 Assyrian troops destroyed in a moment. This man had been completely healed of a terminal disease through prayer. And now the prophet is telling him, Hezekiah, be warned, the Babylonians are coming, and it's going to be so bad that even your own line of sons, they're going to, your whole name is going to cease to exist. Your sons are going to be castrated in the palaces of the Babylonian dictators. What do you think this great man of prayer and trust should have been his response? You'd expect him to fall on his face as he had his whole life and say, God, be merciful. You'd expect him to care deeply, be moved in the, viscerally in his depths and just, please, future generations, my sons, don't let, that's what you would expect him to begin to pray in front of the prophet. But instead we read this, 2 Kings twenty nineteen. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? This is, in my mind, I, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. There's absolutely nothing about what Isaiah's words were that were good in any, in any way at all. And what we have here is a glimpse into Hezekiah's heart with that last statement. At least there's going to be peace and security while I'm alive. It may go bad for my kids and my grandkids, but hey, I'm going to go golf on the course, and it's going to be all good for me, is what we see into this man's heart. There was something off. There was something inconsistent. He lacked integrity. Hezekiah had done some of the most incredible things as a man of faith and as a leader of Israel that we see in the entirety of the narrative of the the Old Testament. And yet, in these last words, we see into a heart that was actually, in, at least in his later days, completely self-serving. And these words, they were categorically inconsistent with everything else that we had seen in Hezekiah's life to that point. Generational thinking right now, in this moment, generational thinking cares about what comes after us. A life that leaves a legacy for God strives for consistency and integrity until the day that we're buried in our graves. That is, integrity is what we say aligns with what we believe and what we do. Integrity is always about what's doing right, even when we're not seen, even into the deeps of our hidden places in our hearts. Integrity cares beyond ourselves, and it continues to love the other at cost to ourselves beyond ourselves. Think of loving the other as your great-grandchildren and how that frames up the way that you make decisions in your life. This secret that Hezekiah had kept, namely that he really didn't care, it was exposed at the end. It came out. And I really think this is an important note on Hezekiah's life. The next king after him, his son Manasseh, Manasseh goes down in the Jewish histories as one of the nastiest kings ever to rule. Now, this is just conjecture, but maybe, maybe Hezekiah's lack of caring bled through in his parenting and influenced his son. 
And so Hezekiah looked like this great, incredible leader on the outside and revival and all these amazing things are happening. But at home, Manasseh, in the deep, intimate relationships with his father and his, just by proximity, Manasseh's kind of seeing the truth of it. Like, God doesn't really care. And maybe it was that Manasseh made decisions about Yahweh based on what he saw in the privacy of his own home with his father. No matter how good things are looking on the outside, God knows our hearts, and he's inviting us to a life of integrity that goes down into our deeps, into every fiber of our being. And so before we move to this last king that I want to talk about and the need for intimacy, the need for intimacy, I just want to highlight a couple quick things. Number one, this this pursuit, this decision, this commitment to humility and integrity, it's a lifelong commitment. Like, I think that we have been trained to be looking forward to, well, when I'm in my 40s, it'll be finally ease up a little bit. Well, when my kids are uh, not toddlers, then then I won't face these temptations, then I won't face these struggles, then I won't be so exhausted. Well, when my kids aren't teenagers, uh, then I won't be so, then I won't, when my kids are gone, we always, every season, every season until the day that we face Jesus face to face, we will find ourselves needing this lifelong commitment to humility, to letting go, to surrendering, and to integrity, letting it saturate, his spirit saturate through our being. These two kings, they actually came apart in the final years of their lives, the last years of their lives. You know, my wife and I, we talk about this often, and we talk about success in ministry and what kind of legacy will we leave and blah, 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 at least I do. And we have come to a place where our personal definition of success, what we know will leave a true legacy for our kids and grandkids and the churches that we get to plant and be part of, is that we make it to our, here's our definition of success. We are praying humbly to make it to our deathbeds, married, but not only married and surviving in marriage, but thriving as best friends and still loving each other, completely head over heels in love with each other. We often joke that we'll leave a legacy to our kids, uh, you know, that we pray for our kids that they're only going to need like minimal therapy for everything that we did to them while we were raising them. And honestly, we know that, and we know that what's really going to leave a legacy isn't the churches that were planted, but were the relationships that we were in with you real? Were they real? Were we real with the humans that God placed us in the midst of? Did we let those humans know us, and did we know those humans? Because when we're all gone, that's all that will be left is the memories of those relationships. Everything else fades into the history books, and most of it doesn't even get written there. But what is left is the tangible, connective tissue of relationships that were authentic and full of integrity. And so we can pray. Of course we're going to pray for ministry success, but ministry can fail. Of course we're going to pray for provision and for health and all of those things, but poverty and Sickness can overcome those things. We are just like Hezekiah and Uzziah. And so at the end of our days, when we've been made strong by God, we have to be guarded against prayer. At the end of our days, when we're still being tested by our Father to see where our heart is, we need to seek integrity and honesty. And that's the second thing that I want to talk about before we move on. These kings, Hezekiah and Uzziah, they were just like me and you just like me and you. These kings did great things, and these kings did terrible things. 
And their legacies were marked by both. You know, because we love Marvel movies, we love to think of categories of good and bad, evil and righteous, humble and prideful. Like we exist in this perfectly binary world. You've got the good guys and the bad guys, the prideful guys and the humble guys. And we all know that that's just not the case. We all know that we are a constant mixture of all of those things combined. And so the people of God in every generation have to learn and relearn that impactful Christian living, it's a matter of daily walking by faith, daily, moment by moment, abandoning ourselves to the living God who's present in this space with the breath that you just took into your lungs, and daily asking him, Father, today, because you're faithful to answer these prayers, revitalize us and strengthen us in this moment for the sake of the next moment. And it is terribly humbling to be that dependent on God for our legacy. And it requires massive integrity. We can't lie to ourselves about where we are in our hearts and minds and souls. We have to understand and be introspective and be still and become aware of where we are finding those unconscious streams of consciousness driving us to manipulate or strive or do, do these things that eventually come out of us. We have to be honest with where we are and how we're doing so that we can daily seek God's filling afresh to make us discerning beyond our years and our own capacities. And this humility and this integrity, it really is a choice to embrace his spirit, to make us wise into salvation and enable us to persevere. Here it is. The fundamental difference between a fallen legacy and a flourishing legacy is the fallen slowly, just over time, begins to ignore God, maybe becomes entitled, maybe gets just a little bit too comfortable in the world in which we currently exist, while the flourishing legacy seeks God's face to know him better, adopts God's priorities until the day that we die, and develops these godly patterns of life all the way to our graves. And so I want to close this morning with this third factor for legacy, and it's the most important out of all of them. It's the need for intimacy. And for intimacy, I want us to look at Jesus, the true King of Kings. Only Jesus left a perfect legacy. And Jesus left his perfect legacy to us by perfect obedience. And that obedience was strengthened by intimate relationship with his Father and with the Holy Spirit. So throughout his life, Jesus said things like this. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So intimate with the Father that his obedience was in step with exactly what the Father was doing in the moment. My father is always at work, Jesus said, to this very day, and I too am working. And then he prayed at the end of his life, all I have is yours, and all you have is mine, that intimacy, that interconnectivity, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. They may be one as we are one. Jesus was God come to us as a human. And God came to us as a human to make us one with himself, to make us one with God, and to make us one with each other. 
We need to not lose sight of this. Jesus humbly obeyed as a human. We often look at the life of Jesus and we say, well, he was God. So what we need to understand theologically, the profundity, the great profound reality of the incarnation is that Jesus lived obediently as a human, just like you and just like me. And he did that in a space of intimate, vital unity with his Father by the Holy Spirit. And so it's our intimate unity with God that produces fruit in this present moment right here in this space. And it's our intimate unity with God that will produce fruit in the future. It's in close, familiar relationship with God. That is where we experience grace for the pockmarks of our legacies. The more deeply we experience ourselves as known and loved and accepted by God and one with him, that is where he restores us, heals us, speaks to us, births our dreams, rewrites our history. That is where he empowers us. That is where he fills us. Intimacy with God is how he conforms us into his image. And that, that you guys, is where we experience ourselves as children. Our core identity. The most humble, and honestly, children usually have the most integrity in that they don't know how to lie. They don't know how to fake it. And it's in those spaces of unity with God where we experience ourselves as his children. So Jesus lived the life that we couldn't so that we could be one with God. And then Jesus took the sin upon him, upon himself, that made us unclean. Jesus took the leprosy of Uzziah, and he took our own leprosy. Jesus took the lack of integrity of Hezekiah. He took our own lack. He took it all into himself to wash us and cleanse us so that we might not be separated from God any longer. And that's all God's work, to leave a legacy. The greatest work you can do is believe that and receive that and live out of that. We need to learn as a people to be still in his absolute unconditional love. We practice silence so that we can learn to hear God's heartbeat. When we get to the Gospel of John next week, there's this incredible scene where John leans back and rests on the breast of Jesus and can just hear his heartbeat. And that's going to be the imagery for the entire Gospel of John, a whole year of us leaning back, setting our ear to listen to the heart of our Savior and our King. Now, some of us, if you're anything like me, you may think it's too late. Um, We all make decisions that can be quite tragic, and we may feel like, man, I've wrecked my life, or maybe I wrecked the life of my kids, or I wrecked or I'm scared I'm going to wreck the life of my kids. My wife and I always talk about that. Man, what, what are we doing that's going to hurt them or mess them up? And what you need to understand is that those are lies. Those are deceptions. You can't wreck your life enough because God is the God of ultimate restoration. God actually changes legacies on deathbeds. I've heard the stories of the most hard-hearted, cruel people coming to Christ in the last minute and leaving generations of Christians after them. And you need to remember this morning, loved one, that when it says he works all things together for good, that's not just here and now. He works up 
and works out our messed up parenting, our messed up leadership, our messed up lives, and the pockmarks of our own legacies, he actually works that into the threads of the generations that come behind us for good, for his glory, and for the well-being of the world. And we can rest in that. We can become still in that. We can be a non-anxious presence in the midst of that for everybody else that's striving to get the right book and read the right parenting thing and go to the right conferences. We can just sit back and say, it's all good. He's going to work it all out for good. And though the patterns of our lives certainly are going to be pockmarked with failures and victories, in Jesus we are remembered by the Father and ultimately in eternity as perfect because we are God's beloved children. Can you hear this this morning as we get ready to come to communion? To be remembered as forgiven is an honorable legacy. I would love if generations from now, my great-great-grandkids are saying, I had this great-great-grandfather in the early 2000s. He was a preacher. And he wanted to be remembered as forgiven. That's honorable. It's humiliating. It's humbling. There's not a lot of money in it. They're probably not going to make a statute to Dan who was forgiven. But that's a legacy of integrity and Christian gospel reality. To be the head of a family, male and female, in this room, and your family is known as totally dependent on God, that is not a mark of weakness. It's a mark of eternal strength. And to have spent our lives, you guys, never being seen or platformed or rich or made great in the eyes of the world, but to have humbly served on the margins, to have served each other in a community like this, to have served our city, to have served each other, that leaves a kingdom legacy that we can't understand how that mustard seed, how that that ripple effect goes through. And then to be one with Jesus as a people of integrity who, who align with what's going on inside and outside. Daily we make it our endeavor to be consistent and integrous with these things. That is how heaven breaks into future generations. So I wanted to take us into communion with a prayer that I've prayed for almost 20 years. I told you guys last week, there are some prayers that I've prayed that um, they're just impossible. They're totally impossible. And I remember... Uh, Having some guy, I was maybe two or three, four weeks old in the Lord, and we'd gone to the speaker, and the guy got up. He was a very motivational speaker. Christians, you need to pray big prayers. Pray prayers that are bigger than you, that are impossible to be answered. And, and the, this is the prayer that came to my mind, and I would invite us as a church to not laugh, but to collectively begin praying this together because it's impossible. Father, please use myself, my wife, or my spouse, my family, and our communities of relationships to touch every person on this planet in this generation and a thousand generations to come with your kingdom. That prayer sounds so ludicrous in so many ways, so impossible. But it's a prayer that moves us from our present tiny little space in this world to a future that we are having effect in while a trillion suns begin their slow decline. It makes our mission this morning, not only for our marriages and for our kids and for being singles in this world, not, it makes our mission so much bigger and so much beyond ourselves. And it's a powerful way to think about the effect of our lives. As we come to communion this morning, trust, be humble, 
serve. When you're alone, do what you would do as if you were in front of others because God is in front of you. And together, together with the rest of the church in this generation, and we're praying now for a thousand generations beyond us, we pray that the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. Let me pray for us. Father, as we close uh, our morning together and we prepare to go to the Gospel of John, we contend for renewal and we're praying that you would launch out of us a network of relationships and discipleship that touches not only ourselves and, and our city in this present moment, but our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids. We pray for the lines that will come from, from us, from the lines that will carry on in humanity should you tarry, that they will be humans who are kingdom people, who are submitted to the king, humbly serving, doing the hard work of justice in this world sacrificing themselves. And I pray, Father, that our community would care about what comes after us. I pray that neighbors would be a space and a community that that multiplies other communities presently into the world, but that we would launch generations of churches, churches that go on and, and continue to maintain the gospel and transform souls and hearts and become the, the presence of Jesus in our cities and neighborhoods and classrooms. And so in our time of communion, we ask, give us a generational vision. Help us to give thanks for those that went before us, that led us to Christ before, before we were even a glimmer in our grandparents' eyes. <laughs> and help us to think about those coming after us and to truly care and to pray for them even today. And so we exalt you and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.